We are in the section about what is talking about the family relationships. We've already covered husbands and wives, or wives and husbands, <clears throat> as well as children and fathers, or children and parents. And now we come to slaves and masters. As we've been talking, we've been learning that a contemporary home in that society could have these different groups, wives and husbands, children and fathers, or children and parents, as well as slaves and masters. I don't think that's to say that in every home there were slaves and masters because um, people could not live that way. It's expensive to have people in your home and caring for you and your uh, estate and so forth. But in this particular case, Paul is writing to the slaves and the masters. And we don't have slavery in our society today, but there's so much we can learn about the slave-master relationship and also how we are to respond and how we are to live and conduct ourselves, especially in the workplace. Now, I say especially in the workplace but as I was studying this and looking at it, this applies in every area of our lives in terms of our relationships, especially how we conduct our affairs, no matter what they are. As we will see as we go through this passage, that the focus is on two basic aspects. The first one is the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as how we do what we do how we do what we do. We will see one key verse in this passage that seems to indicate that this is more about what, how we do what we do versus what we do. Now, I need to explain something here quickly, and that is we don't do anything. We do what's right and good, but how we do it really matters to Christ. And I think we will learn that as we go through this passage. I was very much benefited and blessed as a result of studying this, and hopefully we all will by the end of our time together here this morning. So what I want to do for a final time is to read the entire passage again. So beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3, follow along as I read. He says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now verse 1 of chapter 4. 
Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Just some observations you may have noticed as I was reading, the word Lord appears over and over again. It appears over and over again. So we know that this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, the theme of this letter, we may not have mentioned that in a little while, but the theme of this letter is the all-sufficiency of Christ. The all-sufficiency of Christ. If we have Christ, we don't need anyone else or anything else. Christ is sufficient for our needs. And everything that we receive from God is mediated through him. Now the theme of our verses is glorifying Christ in the workplace by serving our earthly authorities with integrity and diligence. This is the manner in which Christ wants us to do what we do in the workplace or on the golf course or at home or wherever we are because this lesson is really about exalting and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this lesson is really about and that's what this letter is about. Glorifying Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and I think we see that theme permeating through this entire letter, especially in this passage that we are in right now. Webster, the new Webster World Dictionary of the American Language, Second College Edition, defines a slave in these ways. Number one, a human being who is owned as property by another and is absolutely subject to his will. Bond servant divested of all freedom and personal rights. That's the category of the people to whom Paul is writing. Also, a person can be enslaved to more than a human being. The second part of that definition says, a person completely dominated by some influence, habit, person, etc. And we were all in this category one time. We were all in this category one time. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we get to the portion of our verses that relate to that. A slave was considered as a non-person in Rome and had no legal rights. They were regarded as their owner's property as everything else that the masters owned. So they were noted different. The slaves were really no different than uh, this desk or this platform here or a chair or anything else that was owned by their master. They were looked at as the same way. They had no rights. They could not legally marry. They could not start a family or even own anything. And even their names were given to them by their owners. So they were completely subjected to their masters. And this was legal. This was actually legal to be that way. The World History Encyclopedia estimated that approximately during the early days of Christianity in Rome, one in every five persons was a slave. So slavery was numerous, widespread in the Roman Empire during the time of beginning of Christianity. This implies that there, are large, there were large, very large populations of slaves in the empire during that time. 
with such a large percentage of slaves in the empire during that time, you would assume that some of them were chosen to salvation. And you'd be exactly right. Many were chosen to salvation. And we see that as we see that in different aspects of the scriptures, different places in the scriptures where the Bible addresses slaves and talks about how slaves should live. Now, as I was looking at this in other places where I read, I see no place where Paul was protesting against this condition of slavery or anything of that nature. He, wasn't, he didn't seem to be pro it or against it. He just talked about how the believers who were in that position or that situation should relate to one another and how they should glorify God. One thing that we want to emphasize as we go through this is that no matter what our state in life is, no matter what our status in life is, we still have numerous opportunities to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our aim. That is our goal. And that is what this lesson, I think, is about. So our verses are verses 22 through, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Notice what it says. It says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. Now, we've already talked about what slaves are, so we are familiar with that already. But notice it says, obey. This sounds very similar to what we studied last time. Children are to obey their parents, it says, in all things, in everything. Whatever it is that their parents command them to do, that is not in opposition to what the Scripture commands them to do, they are to obey. They cannot pick and just pick and choose what they will obey, obey what they would like to do, and not obey what they would want to do. And it's just, the same was true with the slaves. They could not determine what they would do, and they could not determine what they would not do because of the consequences that they would face. They had no rights. We have to remember that slaves had no rights during that time. So they were to obey, do what they were told to do for the good of the, of the household. Now, in our society, uh, we don't have slaves in the same sense, in that sense. But I think there's a connection here, a relationship that is very helpful, especially for those who are in the workplace, even those who are not in the workplace and relating to people. All of us relate to people in some way, shape, or form. We relate to other people. We, re we relate to unbelievers. As I was thinking about this also, I spend, and those who are still employed in the workplace, probably spend at least a third, if not more, of a day among people, especially unbelievers, a lot of unbelievers. So that way we have an opportunity to adorn the doctrine of God in the workplace and to wear the character of Christ or the gospel, make it visible to those around us so that they can see how a Christian actually lives. And that might be beautiful to them. But the slave was to obey their masters in everything except anything that was contrary to the will of the Lord. He goes on here and he states how a person is to obey he says, not with eye service or external services, as, as translated here, as those who merely please men, 
but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So he tells us how not to obey Christ, and he also tells us how to obey Christ. Now, you will probably see that I'm saying obey Christ because that's really what's going on here. When we are obeying our masters, we are obeying Christ. And that's what we have to remember. We have to keep in mind that it's not just the human master that we are to obey, but we are. But we have to be looking beyond the human master to our heavenly master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the one that we are ultimately wanting to please. He is the one that we are wanting to please. We want to please our human master, but we also want to please our heavenly master. And that's the, the, the human master is the means by which we please our heavenly master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says, not with external service. Now, the word here translated external is actually eye service. It's eye service, not with eye service. That is, not when the master may be present with us or the master's eyes are on us. That is not only the time that we want to do, be obedient to our masters. We want to be doing what he has assigned us to do if he's not anywhere around. That is why we're emphasizing that it is the Lord Christ that we are really obeying because his omnipresent eyes are in every place. He sees us at all times. He sees our behavior. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows our intentions, our attitudes, uh, everything about us. He knows that. So, so not with eye service, just to please men. But, he goes on to say, rather with, in verse 22, sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart. I just want to read, it's not in the same context, a passage that I was mindful, reminded of when I was actually studying this. So let's turn over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. We don't want to do something for the sake of pleasing men or to get favor from men. That is not our desire. We want to be pleasing in all things at all times to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we really want to be doing. Chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 1, beginning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. This is a very, really a penetrating statement that if we are doing whatever it is we're doing to look good in the sight of men, we can forget about what we will receive from God because it's not going to be there. He says, we already have it. You have no reward from your heavenly Father or your Father who is in heaven. So then, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, this is verse 2, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. Why? So that they may be honored by men. We're not doing what we do because of men. We want to fulfill the role that our bosses have given us, but we're looking beyond them to our real master who's in heaven. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's it. They have it in full. 
But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they have to st- for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So we don't want to be doing our service as men pleasers, but we want to be doing it with integrity or sincerity of heart. And notice that. He says, I think in letter E of Roman numeral 1, this is how we are to obey. We just talked about how we are not to obey, but this is how we are. But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. With sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This word sincerity here means singleness. Not as it relates to a marital relationship, whether a person is single or married, but as it relates to our focus on what we are commanded to do. In other words, we are doing what we have been commanded to do without concern about who's noticing us or who's looking at us or who's not looking at us because we always know that Christ is always looking at us. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter what our motives are, no matter what our intentions are, Christ is always seeing us. So we want to do it with integrity or singleness of mind or singleness of heart. And notice the last phrase, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Out of honor and reverence and awe for the Lord, the Lord Christ. Because that's the one, that's the one we're really serving. Fearing the Lord. This reminded me of a, a passage in Romans chapter 3 where Paul indicts the whole human race in chapter 3. We can turn over there. I'm not going to read all those verses, but there's one verse I I want to focus on. He indicts the whole human race, Jews and Gentiles, because of the way that they're living. Now notice uh, at the end of this section, verse 18 of chapter 3 of Romans. Why were they living as they were living? Notice what this verse says. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Fearing God has a lot to do with how we live and how we honor him and how we obey him. If I exalt, if I have the intention of exalting, reverencing, being amazed and in awe of Christ, I will honor him. I will obey him. But if I don't have that holy reverence and holy awe of him and for him, I don't have the same sense of requirement to obey him. So that is why they were not obeying God and living as they were living, because there was no fear of God before their eyes. So that's, we want to live in a manner where we are fearing God, fearing Christ all the time. And this obedience comes from a transformed heart. It comes from a transformed heart, because now... We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a radical transformation has taken place on the inside of them. At the core of their being, they have been radically changed. Even as Brother Jordan was praying 
for his mom this morning. He was, telling, he was asking God to change her heart, remove the heart of stone, and give her a heart of flesh, transform her inner being, and so that uh, she can now receive the repentance and faith that God would desire to give her, that she can trust in Christ and be transformed. The Christian slaves were to obey with singleness of purpose in order to honor and to glorify Christ. That was their purpose, and that's what Paul is telling them, and that's by, by extension, that's what he's telling us. We can uh, accept this message as he's writing it to us, because he is. Those people don't exist. They don't live anymore in, in Colossae. They are either in heaven or wherever they are, but um, we are still here, and this is by extension to us to do this. So we want to honor Christ in all that we do, in everything that we do. We want to be honoring him. We want to be adorning the doctrine of God. We want to be wearing the doctrine of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Roman numeral 2. Notice what it says. This is in verses, let me turn back to our text now, verses 23 and 24. He says, whatever you do, this is interesting, whatever you do, this is a broad scope. There's, um, it's very wide, broadly. As I was mentioning, as I was looking at this, that's what I came to think about. It's not always what we do or what our position is or what we are demanded to do or commanded to do. Whatever you do, notice how it says to do it. Do your work heartily. Do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men. Why? Knowing or because that we know from the, it is from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, he's returning back to verse 17, and I want to go to verse 17 of the same chapter. Notice what verse 17 says. Once all of that was taught before in a general sense of how we as believers are to live, he kind of summed it up in verse 17 of that chapter, of, of the same chapter. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, is there any other way to do anything? Whatever you do in word or deed, this is how we are to do it. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Notice how he wants us to do that. Whatever we do or whatever we say, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean? He means do it according to the character and nature of the Lord himself. What would that look like? It would look like Christ. It would look like Christ. And that is the intent and purpose of what, what he, why he's writing here, so that we may be adorning and wearing Christ. I think it's in Romans. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wear him. Put him on. And that's what I think this is referring to. When people see us, see us and how we are functioning in a godly, humble, gentle way, they will see Christ. 
And that's what we want. They will see Christ. And we want them to see Christ, not us. Because we cannot save them, but Christ can. And we want them to see our Savior and our Lord, that we are humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever our assignment is, and it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's legal and moral and not in conflict with the character of God himself, we, can, we want to do it in this manner. We want to do it in a manner that honors God. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Heartily here is doing it in a manner where we're giving it our all. We're not going to work for just a paycheck. We do go to work for a paycheck, but we want to give a maximum effort in whatever it is we're doing. He says, whatever you do. There's one place in the scripture, and I couldn't find it, but it says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with all that you are. Do it with all of your being. As they would say in the athletics, they would say, we left it all on the floor. We left it all on the field, or we left it all on the court. Whatever they play on, they left it all there. That's what we want to do. We want to be tired when we get home. We want to be spent because we want to have poured out our whole being in the service of that employer. Do it heartily. Do it from the heart, with good motives, with good intentions. And I love the next phrase. Notice what it says, as for the Lord rather than for men, because that's who we're really working for. We are really working for the Lord. We are really serving the Lord. We're serving him. I was thinking about this. I, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot said about Jesus uh, during his younger life, up to 12, as the Bible is kind of silent. But when you think about it, he was the oldest of how many siblings? At least six of six siblings, and we hear nothing else after he's, after he's 12 years old. We don't hear anything else about Joseph, his earthly father. So he probably had to take over the responsibilities of the household. And I'm sure when he was working, doing what he was doing, he was probably doing it with excellence. He was probably spending himself in what he was doing. That is what he wants us to do. He wants us to spend ourselves in our service to our earthly masters because it is as to Christ. It says, as for the Lord rather than for men. Because we're really serving Christ. We're really serving Christ. I was thinking about this also. I was thinking, you know, what, how would it look or how would it be if you know, I could actually see Christ, and he was right in the same room with me or wherever I was doing my work. Well, he is. He is there. We, he's invisible to us, but he's actually there. He's actually there with us and seeing everything that we do. So do it heartily. Why? Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. This word knowing here is probably a, a causal participle because you know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, 
at that time and in this context, slaves did not receive rewards. This was probably shocking to them. When they heard this read in the home of perhaps Philemon or whoever the, the manager or the owner of the household was, where this church was probably meeting, this was probably very stunning to them. They didn't have anything to look forward to. But now, because they are united with the Lord Jesus Christ, they are now in Christ. They are being told now how to work, how to conduct their lives, because there is an award, reward, waiting for them. It's common to us, but for them at that time, it was not. It was probably a stunning, shocking statement. For me, I can receive something after this life. But the answer is yes, because now they are members of the household of God and the family of God. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. This word receive here has a preposition attached to it. It's in front of it, but it's connected to it, which intensifies the aspect of this particular verb. And what it really means is, is that Christ, you will receive it directly from Christ himself. It will not be mediated through an angel or any other being. You will receive it directly from Christ himself. That is absolutely amazing. Where Christ is honoring his people with the rewards that they are receiving. And Paul is writing to slaves here, the lowest of the low. Many slaves were charged with very menial tasks. And looking at these tasks from the perspective of Christ lifts them up from the mundane to something that is very significant. You know, uh, if you are, if a person is involved in a somewhat what's called a menial task, It could become routine, it could become boring, but when we're looking at it from the right perspective, that whatever it is, whether it's a dishwasher in a restaurant, whether it's a busboy in a restaurant, whether it's a waiter or waitress in a restaurant, whether it's a CEO of a corporation, whatever the position or status of that person is, the The aspect of what they are doing is heightened or brought to a different level when they recognize that they are doing it for Christ. It takes on different meaning than it does on its own. And that's why when we are in the workplace or at the home, in in the house, at home, for those of you who have children at home, you're serving your husband, you're serving your children, God is noticing you. God is watching you. Do it with excellence. Do it with the character of God himself. Do it as unto the Lord, because you are doing it to the Lord. Notice Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is how Paul wrote to the slaves under uh, Titus' oversight. Notice what he says. Verse 9. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, urge, if you have a a, a new NASB, 
It says bond slaves, but the word is doulos. It's actually slaves. To be subject to their masters, their own masters, to what extent? In everything. In everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. And that is exactly what we want to be doing. We want to be adorning the doctrine of God in everything that we are doing so that people can actually see the character of Christ himself. Yes, sir. It's your will. Yeah, you're exactly right. I've noticed that as well. It will stick out. Because a lot of complaining and whining and grumbling. I'm sorry? Oh, yes. You want to repeat it? You, you want to repeat that or want me to? Right. Yeah. Stay away from the water cooler. Stay away from the water cooler. Yeah, stay away from there. Yeah. So anyway, um, it says, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So there's something beyond work beyond our job to look forward to, beyond the paycheck. There's an eternal reward for those who are adorning the doctrine of God in the way that they live in the workplace. You know, uh, sometimes we want to separate uh, work in the marketplace from, let's say, serving in the church. We don't want to do that. God honors both. God honors both. If it's Doing something that's good, something that's beneficial, something that's not illegal, something that's not immoral, do it heartily. Do it from the heart. Do it with the right spirit, the right attitude, the right motive. God will honor that. He says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. What does this inheritance look like? I think First Peter chapter 1 Verses 3 through 5 describe it about as well as any other place that I've seen it. We know that it's eternal life. We will inherit God's kingdom. We'll be part of his kingdom. But notice what he says here in verse 3 of First Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
And notice verse 4. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected, that is, us, by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is absolutely amazing as to what our inheritance will be. We will spend all eternity with, with Jesus himself. We'll spend all eternity with God himself. I don't know of anything any better than that. Now we come to chapter, I mean, verse 24, the last part of verse 24. And I need to make a few comments regarding verse 24. In the NAS it says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. What we've done now, we've come to a verse, part of a verse, that the verb that's in it can either be what's called an indicative or an imperative. That is, in, in, indicative means the statement of a fact. Just, in fact, that's the way they translate it here. It is Lord Christ whom you serve. That's just, that's a fact. That's the indicative. But the word can also, the verb can also be translated as an imperative, that is, a command. That scenario is not often in the New Testament, but it's occasionally found, and it's found here. So I think I need to make a comment regarding it. I believe, personally, that the better translation is the, the mood of command. In other words, we are commanded to be slaves of the Lord Christ. The verb is, is uh, a word that has do, lu, et, o in it. That is a verb for do, loss. It's the counterpart of the noun of do, loss. It's the verb form of slave. And the, the ending of it implies that it's a command or it's an indicative. So I think in the context here, it's better to be translated as a command. Literally, it says, to the Lord Christ be enslaved. To the Lord Christ be enslaved. That's what it literally reads if you look at it in the original language. To the Lord Christ be enslaved. So Paul is telling us to be enslaved. We are slaves of Christ. And I want to read a section in Romans that really bring this, brings this out. I know slavery is a challenging concept in America for us to talk about or listen to, but it's a reality. It's a reality in the New Testament. It was a reality during these days, and Paul did not hold back from talking about it. In fact, there are many terms in many places in the New Testament where the word doulos, which means slave, that's what it really means, it's translated servant. It's translated servant. But it's actually a slave. And it relates to what I read earlier about not having rights and so forth. So anyway, I want to go to Romans chapter 6. This is a pretty long reading here, but I think it really brings out the fact of who we actually are as believers in Jesus Christ. Before I get there and talk about it, every person in this room Every person on this planet is a slave. And it may be a stunning statement or shocking statement, but every person is a slave to something. Either to righteousness, 
and Christ or to Satan and sin. Every person is a slave to one or the other. Jesus said, to whatever person obeys, that person is a slave of that. If I continue to obey sin, I'm a slave of sin. If I continue to yield to righteousness, I'm a slave of righteousness. I am a slave. You are a slave. Every person in this world is a slave of something. And I think that is what Romans chapter 6, the latter part of that chapter talks about. Let's go to verse 15. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul's response is, may it never be. Absolutely not. Do you know that when you present it, when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been, listen to this, and having been freed from sin, when we were freed from sin, we weren't just left hanging out there. Notice what it says in the second part of this verse. You became slaves of righteousness. We were freed from sin. Sin no longer dominates us. Sin no longer empowers us or rules over us like a dominating force. Christ liberated us from that aspect. But he, he also says, you became slaves of righteousness. And notice verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you were presented, for just as you presented your members as slaves of impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now you've been changed, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of righteousness. And that is how we want to live. Be slaves of Christ. This is letter D of, you may have, um, I think it's Roman numeral 2. Be slaves of the Lord Christ. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's the way it's translated in the NAS. But we are actually slaves of righteousness, and we are slaves of Christ. Christ is our master now. He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our ruler now. Because this is an exchange of slavery. This is an exchange of slavery. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we've been liberated from the slavery to sin. That doesn't mean we don't sin. We do. But we're not enslaved to sin anymore. We were dominated by sin. Sin ruled over us. But now the power of sin has been broken. But because of our remaining fallenness or humanness or the flesh, 
that has not been redeemed, we still sin. But not like we did before. We've been liberated from that by the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just, I just wanted to mention that. We have been liberated from the dominating, ruling, controlling power of sin. And now we are slaves of righteousness and to Christ. He goes on in Roman numeral 3, consequences without partiality for doing wrong. Notice verse 25. Verse 25. Is it verse 25? Verse 25. It says this. It says, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. We still sin. We still do wrong. But we're not dominated by the sin, by sin itself. There are two terms we want to consider. Sin, S-I-N. Sin is like a ruling power. It's like a ruling force wanting to dominate us. And then we have S-I-N-S, sins. That is what we actually commit. We commit sins, but we commit sins because sin wants to rule over us. Sin is, is almost like it's personified. It wants to drive us to do what is contrary to what the scriptures teaching, are teaching us to do. But at the same time, even though we are slaves of Christ, we're slaves of righteousness, we, we still cannot blame anything or anyone for causing that because we might sin. We have no excuse for sinning because the power of sin by Christ's death has been broken over us. And we, have, we cannot blame anything or anyone or say if this person hadn't done, that to, hadn't, hadn't done that to me, I would not have done this. That is not what Christ is looking for. We cannot justify our sins. I think that's what this verse is talking about. And I think the principle of lex telionis is implicit, explicit here. In other words, we will receive for the consequences of whatever we have done. Notice the verse again. He says, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. In other words, the consequences of the sin will be an exact match of what the sin deserves. So we cannot sin without, uh, with impunity. We cannot justify our sins, no matter what our status is, no matter how lowly we might be and pressure that's being put upon us, the trial that we are facing, or whatever the situation is with us, we cannot justify sinning. MacArthur put it this way. He says, the Christian servant is not to presume on his Christianity to justify disobedience. We cannot do that. Even if we are God's children, we will reap what we sow because God is impartial. There is no impartiality with God. If we sin as believers, we will receive a consequence of that sin, whatever consequence is deserved for that particular sin. That's kind of a summary of this verse. Even in uh, Peter, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, it talks about there is no impartiality with God. No impartiality. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. And he has to address sin no matter who commits it. Yes. 
Exactly. I think I think he's still addressing slaves here. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion on that in the different commentaries you look at. But I think he's still addressing slaves. And our last verse will be to the masters. But I think slaves are still addressed here. And he wants us to know in this verse that we are, at least the verse, last part of the verse before that, that we are slaves and we still have to do the right thing even in a slave situation. In other words, if the master is being unjust to us, we still have to obey Christ. If people are uh, condemning us, I mean, criticizing us, or whatever the case might be, we still have to obey Christ because there's no partiality with God. God has to deal with sin no matter who's committing it. I think that's kind of the essence of this. That doesn't mean we're going to lose our salvation. It's not, it's not talking about that. But I think the slaves, are, I looked far and wide as far as I could find something on this, and that's kind of the conclusion that I came to. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Kidnapping, that's the key term. Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons why... Um, Many of, the com- many of the Bible translators don't translate the word doulos as slave because of that. There's kind of a stigma attached, but we're dealing with the truth here. So and we're dealing with Scripture, so Paul didn't back away from it. Uh, he, he's speaking the truth, and we want to speak the truth in love, not condemning anybody or blaming anybody for anything, but just speaking the truth. That's what we want to do. Yes, sir. Okay, yes. So anyway, in, in essence, the, the masters are to be just and fair to their slaves. I think the point that Paul is making here is that even though they are masters, they're human masters of the slaves that they own, but at the same time, they have a master also in heaven. Let me just read the verse and we'll conclude. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. We all on the same ground at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. And we pray that we would live according to your commands of us. No matter what we're doing, we just pray that we will seek to honor you and to glorify you. And thank you that your word tells us how to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.